All right, welcome back to another episode of the Blasters and Blades podcast. So, hey there, all you crazy sci-fi and fantasy fans. It's time for your daily dose of shenanigans over here at the Blasters and Blades podcast. Just three nerdy veterans geeking out over our science fiction passions and fantastical fantasies, a place where magic is king, the sky is the limit, and space is the place. The place. See, I even speak sometimes. So without further ado, we're going to introduce you to our guests. We have with us Larry Correa. So Larry, can you introduce yourself to people that live in, I don't know, an igloo who might not know who you are? <laughs> Hi, I'm uh, I'm uh, the author of the Monster Hunter International series and the Grim Noir Chronicles and the uh, Dead Six Thrillers along with Mike Coopery and also the uh, Saga of the Forgotten Warrior epic fantasy series and a bunch of other stuff. So uh, that's me. I just I've been a writer for uh, about twelve years now, and thoroughly enjoy this stuff, uh, sci-fi and fantasy. All right. And before we start talking to John, we're going to say how we first met them. So, Seska, how did you first meet Larry? I'm guessing probably not booze this time. No, actually. So it's funny because I I actually read a blog that Larry somehow came across my Facebook feed and. Um, I'd heard about Larry and I'd heard that he wrote these really great books that just snagged John Ringo's brain and took it on a, on a wild goose ride. But um, I read a blog that he wrote during a, a couple elections ago talking about how the New York times was being uh, so judgy about whether or not some, uh, certain candidates looked Hispanic enough. <laughs> and um, I, he, you really said it the way I felt it. Cause I grew up, I, I have a, my first name, my full first name is Hispanic and I'm Hispanic on my mom's side, but as we can see, I don't look like the stereotype. So I'd grown up with that kind of treatment a lot of my life. And so it was really neat to find an author who did and who was calling out major media for being a bunch of racist jerks. So uh, I, when I met Larry, I had a complete fan moment and I lost my brain, forgot how to speak. And I literally sat there and poked my hand trying to set the reset button in my brain. And Larry just looked at me and he's like, are you okay? So I actually uh, met Larry at HonorCon, the last one they did, what was it, 2016, 2017? Sounds uh, right. And uh, we were, my mom and I, the last, the Sunday, um, we were, the, everyone was packing up his last day of the con. And uh, we were having breakfast because, you know, why pay when they give it to you for free at the hotel? And you just invited yourself into the table and joined us for breakfast. And it was it was glorious. So this is the best uh, best meal crasher we ever had. But, yeah, the writers uh, since, just got to find a place to sit, you know. So I understand. And free bacon is free bacon. So, Heck yeah. Um, so, John, we don't normally well, – this, this is the first time we've had co-authors on together. So how did you first meet Larry? Larry and I were at a convention in Salt Lake City. He was a new author. He had just gotten his his uh, deal with Bain Books. And I was a new author. I just had published a book with Tor Books. And we were on this panel with, of all people, David Farland. And uh, they asked us what, we'd done, what we were doing or what our day jobs were or whatever. And I said, well, I got my master's degree in accounting. And uh, Dave Farland said, well, I, I used to be an accountant. And Larry's like, well, I'm an accountant. And so after, after that, uh, you know, so we laughed and we, we told the audience that the key to getting published was to be an accountant. Uh, after that, Dave and I were going to, uh, we're, we're doing a book tour. And we had had a number of them scheduled. And we had an open slot. And I was like, let's get... Let's get the other accountant. Let's go with Larry. And so 
that's how we met. And uh, we did a, our first uh, book tour was down to the San Diego area. It was, uh, it was fun. It was a good time. So that's how Larry and I met. And I'm sure you kept all the receipts for purposes. <laughs> yes. All right. So does that does that uh, make sense to you, Larry? Does that jive with your memory? That sounds about right. And then after that, um, uh, me and John went out on several other book tour little trips together. This is back before um, you know publishers would pay us to go on book tour, and so we would just do it on our own. And we. We did uh, Arizona together. We did Colorado together. We would just drive from Utah and then hit every single bookstore in a major metro area. Um, the one in Colorado, we almost died because we caught a blizzard leaving Denver. And we drove the entire way across Wyoming in this blizzard trying to beat it home before they shut down I-80. And uh, it took, well, I think, about 16 hours Uh yeah, we every minute of I actually had heart palpitations because of the terror. We're we're two big guys, and we're stuffed into this little Ford Focus, and the wind's blowing. It was like an odyssey. We were going down the freeway, and and uh, we see this semi off to the side that's on fire. Right, and we keep going, and then a little bit later, there's another semi. There's a an elk that had been hit. Some dude had left his truck, and he was over there trying to saw the horns off. I looked up. I swear that truck was still moving forward, just rolling a little bit forward. So it was it was an interesting trip. I just have to say, interesting yep. trip. That was a fun one. Yeah. Did that make it into a book? And then it's all tax deductible. <laughs> well, it's tax deductible anyway. <laughs> Uh, all right. And so, Seska, well, first off, uh, John Brown, why don't you introduce yourself to the audience? Yeah, I, I write action thrillers and epic fantasies. So I've got a series, a Frank Shaw series. It's, it's action thriller. He's an ex-con that's trying to go straight. And then uh, Tor published me. I debuted with Epic Fantasy and uh, had a series there and I'm working on another series. And then I guess now I'm doing science fiction as well. So whatever, you know, bring it on. Larry Romance is next. Oh, that's going to be interesting. Monster Hunter edition romance? Like you no. can mix the Regency body stripper with Monster Hunter? You can make a Just as long as it has guns in it and action, I think we're all right. Well, if he I has a friend a who writes for a lot of romance. If I wanted to make a lot of money, I w I'm friends with Laurel Hamilton. I'd see if like, hey, Laurel, you want to do a Monster Hunter romance? Yeah, that would pay off my house. <laughs> yeah, it might be her. Anita Blake's a bit off brand for MIA. Yeah, a little. <laughs> okay, so how, Seska, we're going to ask this question next. So how did you first hear or meet John? Uh, I, I got told, hey, there's a brand new book Larry's coming out with. And I went, oh, cool. I'll go get the e-arc. And so I went and got the e-arc. And I went, wait. First I went, wait, this isn't fantasy. <laughs> I just went and got the book because I knew I liked Larry's work. <laughs> okay. And then I went, okay, this is cool. And so. All right. But, uh, so we're picking up uh, Larry's new book, Gunrunner, which we're here to talk about. 
So I, I was told to show up here because Seska bosses me around all the time uh, for this podcast. And so when I found out the book, I started looking him up. But I will say, if you haven't read his website, we'll link to it after the show. It'll be linked in the show notes. His About Me section is hilarious. I was laughing, by the way, at your bio of yourself. So oh, that's fun. Most of the time, people, they bore me to tears when they write their bio. It's either too short, so like, I don't know what I just read, or it's too long, and you just you know, dude, pare it down a little bit. Yours was was long, but it was hilarious, so you win the internet today, sir. All right. Good job. All right. The next question is yours, Seska. What? Oh, yes. So, on to religion of sorts. Star Wars, Star Trek, or Firefly? You got to tell them which one you're asking because there's two of them now. Okay, well, we're going to go with John. Firefly. Okay. Larry? Answer. Uh, honestly, Firefly is the best overall. and um, But it's also really short. And so I've also got a lot of enjoyment out of Star Wars over the years because there's more of it. <laughs> But also, a lot of it's a lot worse. It's true. But I did grow up reading those, so it's a good answer, Star Wars. Well, yeah, I mean, because if there had been a series of kick-ass Timothy Zahn novels about Firefly, you know, that'd be, that, that, that'd be you know, that'd be hands down, but... Uh, wait, wait, wait. You know people. Could you make that happen for us? <laughs> no, I, yeah, I'm pretty sure, I'm pretty sure I, I'm on Joss Whedon's Do Not Call list. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. Well, I mean, you know, Star, Star Wars wins for the epic, for the epic feel. I mean, come on, you can't compete with that. But Firefly's got a lot of junkyard dog coolness about it. Oh yeah, totally, yeah. totally. So on to the fantasy religion. Do you like? Is it Game of Thrones, Harry Potter, or Tolkien? What was the last one? Tolkien. Like Lord, Lord of the, the Rings. Rings. Lord of the Rings. Lord of the Rings. That is the yeah. right answer. So well done. Yes. Hands and the elves are the correct height. Oh, don't get me wrong. I, 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 I enjoyed Harry Potter. Um, Game of Thrones, I only read the first book. And this is way before the TV show came along. And mm -hmm. I read the first book and I just kind of, it wasn't my thing. You know, I like, I like heroes in my fantasy and this was just like victims and thugs and people victimizing each other and i i wasn't it wasn't my thing it's very grim i, I got very. through the first book the second book petered out for me i'm sure we're gonna have somebody who wants to like explain to me how i'm so wrong and they're welcome to some other time yeah they can <laughs> i wouldn't care <laughs> so, right. um so if you want to tell us that, you can follow us at the uh, Facebook group, Blasters and Blades Podcast, or any of the other platforms that will be linked to in the comment section. Yes. Doc so, will love to hear from you. What? I, I said I'm yeah. sure you would love to hear from them. Sure. You can write all hate, hate mail to Nick at, <laughs> at Blasters and Blades Podcast because he missed the show. Um, so going into what is it? that you love about the science fiction and fantasy genre? Uh, Larry, we're gonna alternate. Oh man, uh, it was, it's always been my, it's always been my thing. Um, well, I mean, I started out as a kid with Westerns was the first thing I was ever into reading and a lot of history, but I, I the very first gateway drug for me was sort of Shannara 
uh, we got or Elf. I'm sorry, actually, Elfstones was the first one I read because we got it out of a yard sale, and uh, I loved it. I love fantasy, and I never looked back. Uh, discovered D and D when I was a little bit older. Uh, love fantasy novels growing up. I was probably in high school before I read Tolkien for the first time. Um, back then it was Eddings, Feist, uh, geez, pretty much everything. And then I, um, yeah, so I actually got into fantasy before I got into sci-fi, uh, loved them both forever. Um, and then I was better at fantasy writing at first. So that's what I went into first. So, so the first book I ever wrote was actually an action adventure thriller that never got published because it sucked. Uh, so that's actually the first thing I ever tried, but or was the question, do I have to choose between fantasy or sci-fi? No, just what no. you like about each oh, okay, one. okay, good, good. So you answered it? So. And then, and then he answered the next question, was which one came first for you? Oh, oh my bad. But now John gets I to answer. I see it over there, Larry, so John. Yeah. Uh, I, I just, I love the adventure and the peril and, of course, the, the mythical creatures. There's Tolkien... Yeah, once talked about the effect of that distant tower and that there's just that there's that thing out there that you can see but you can't quite reach and there's a I think there's part of that fantasy there's just this magical effect of this <clears throat> this new cool, cool legendary this epic thing out there and Tolkien did that so well he did that with all the history he did it with the ant wives Right, he brings them up, and man, you'd love to know more about it. But then he just doesn't give it to you. So there are a lot of those things that I love about uh, fantasy and science fiction. I, I don't know. I, I love them both. I probably lean towards fantasy. My big, uh, my big thing was uh, the Hobbit when it first came out. When it aired on TV, that Rankin and Bass uh, animated series. So, so um, in fact, it's kind of a funny story. I came home. From school, this is back in the day before DVDs, uh, back before VHS, DVR, all of that, right? We had one TV, and you had to schedule it. Like, we had times, I had four sisters, and you had to schedule it. And my sister comes home from school, and she says, we got to watch, we got to watch The Hobbit. My, my teacher said, we got to watch The Hobbit. And I was like, Hobbit? That's like some romance. Are you kidding me? And it was during my time, and I was like, we're not watching The Hobbit during my time i'm not watching any romance and she said no 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 there's dragons there's dragons and i said no way <laughs> the hobbit get out of here and sure enough there were dragons changed my life forever man <laughs> now did she like it too she loved it yeah yeah that's awesome and hopefully she got a passing grade on whatever that was for yeah whatever it was yeah for sure although that's the perfect excuse if it wasn't for school to just say it was yeah so yeah. if she was being sneaky, points to her because that's creative. All right. So how did your love of science uh, science fiction and fantasy transition into you actually writing stories in it? We'll go to you, John. Well, you know, um, so the, there's The Hobbit. And Rankin and Bass produced a bunch of other things that I loved as a kid. The Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer and Santa Claus is Coming to Kid. All that kind of stop motion animation. And I wanted to be an animator. And so I, I worked as a kid saving money for a, a motion, a, a movie camera. This is back in the day when, <laughs> when it was like 800 bucks. And, and 800 bucks was a lot of money back then, right? It's and I, I got now. plans for an animation stand. So I, I wanted to be an animator. 
and uh, we went on a we went on a, a a trip. My mother and my grandmother were doing this Middle Eastern tour, and they wanted me to come along. I was in ninth grade, and my camera. So I took my camera along, of course, and it got caught in a conveyor belt in Athens, Greece, and it crunched my camera, and it was like the death. The death of my animator dreams. Because <laughs> I was like, I'm, 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 and I'm not going to be able to get another 800 bucks at the time. So, so it, that's that was the first. And then later on in college, I was like, you know what? I, I'm going to write. I, I'm going to write. So, but that that's what started it, man. Rankin Bass. Rankin Bass is who started it for me. What about you, Larry? So, how did liking to read or watch, et cetera, or play games in the sci fi fantasy realm transition into you writing your first story? Um, actually, it's kind of funny. So, so like I said, I love fantasy and sci-fi. It was primarily what I read in my formative years. And then went off to college, uh, and I decided to write the my. I was going to try to write a book for the first time, and I just and what actually set me over the edge. And I think why I wound up trying to write a thriller was the very first thing I ever wrote. Was I was on the time I was on a Tom Clancy kick, and then also um, I had just read this bestseller. It was the number one best-selling novel. Uh, on the New York Times, and uh, I won't name it. I've met the author since. He's actually a nice guy. But this book sucked. I mean, it was so bad. This book was just horrid. It was this thriller, and it got made into a major movie. And uh, I read the book, and it was just so awful. And then so I, I thought, oh, surely this is an anomaly. So I checked out from the library another book by the same thriller author, and it was worse. And uh, I took that, and... Uh, I went to my wife and I said, hey, if this guy could be the number one best-selling author in America, I could get published. <laughs> <laughs> but then I wrote my first book uh, in school and it kind of sucked because, you know, it's your first book. You don't really know. What you're and um, I actually, uh, I, I, I want to put it on the shelf. And then for about 10 years, I didn't write. I went out and had a career and did other stuff. And uh, it wasn't until many years later that I decided to write again. And that's how I tried to write fantasy. And that's when I wrote Monster Hunter. And it's just kind of ever taken off from there. Okay. That's a good answer. All right. So you guys have both touched on um, what it was that you loved for a sci-fi or fantasy. But let's be more specific. And uh, so what was the first property that you remember, either science fiction or fantasy, that, that you grabbed you and said, this is – this is a whole new world for me, and I'm hooked. So we're gonna we're gonna go with you first, John, because I see you you stroking your chin. Well, you know, I grew up with all sorts of movies and everything else. Monster theater, uh, where I was living, every Friday night there was monster theater, and you'd have all of the you know creature from the black lagoon and all that stuff. But I think the the time that it really hit me was I watched The Hobbit, and then uh, just at the end of that that school year. My father uh, owned a, a huge floral and nursery business, and he would go every year to California to work with the, uh, the National FTD Florist Organization. He'd take my mom with her, and they would select the arrangements that, um, that or help select the arrangements that FTD would feature that year. And they'd farm us out to all of our neighbors, right, all five of us kids. And so school was still on. I was at the neighbors across the street and I had that book, The Hobbit, with me. And I started to read it. And uh, that morning I went up the next morning, right? I started to read it and just got barely into it. The next morning I went up to my, the neighbor, you know, the neighbor ladies, the neighbor wife, the mom, whatever you want to call it, neighbor mom. 
And I was like, oh, man, I'm sick. I can't go to school today. She's like, that's all right. You go back downstairs and why don't you rest? So I spent the whole day reading The Hobbit, right? And then I wasn't done yet. So that night we did whatever. And I went and she's like, how you feel? I'm like, I think I'm still sick, man. So day two, I played hooky and read The Hobbit. And that's when things just really, you know, changed for me. I, I, I'd kind of been a reader before that, but not really. I wasn't one of these guys. You know, some of these authors are like, I, I devoured the whole bookmobile when I was a kid, you know. I, I didn't do that. Um, but that was the that was the triggers. J.R. Tolkien cell, man. I love that guy. Okay, what about you, Larry? Okay, I was the kid that read the whole bookmobile. Uh, <laughs> but what it was is I grew up in the sticks. I mean, I grew up in the middle of nowhere. So El Nido, California, back in the day, uh, it was just nothing. It was like population 400. Uh, and, and that it was just, we were out in the country, and we had this little tiny library. And I read, and it was this ancient old building, and I read like literally every book there. And because uh, it was free, we were poor. And then I discovered the joy of interlibrary loans. I could get books from like all over the place. And I did. And I read and read and read. I read tons when I was a kid. I was, I spent like three hours a day riding the school bus. You know, I was like the first kid picked up in the morning and uh, like so long, 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 long drive to school. So I read a lot and, uh, and uh, read pretty much everything I could get my hands on. Uh, so like I said, I started out with Louis L'Amour was my, was my first big thing that I, I literally, I had a, a page ripped out of one of his books that I, I kept score where I marked off all of his 120 something books that I had read. And I went, I finally got them all. Um, it's actually kind of fun. So the very first Bayon book I ever read, I, you know, I write for Bayon, uh, was in 1985. So I was 10 years old and it was at a local supermarket back in the days when they had the spinners of paperbacks. And there was a book called Fangleth by John Dalmas. And uh, I bought this book with my own money. <laughs> which was a big deal back in those days. It was like, you know, 85 cents or whatever. And uh, I loved it. Had a lot of fun with it. And then the second band book I got right after that was uh, Hammer Slammers Collection by David Drake. And then, you know, fast forward uh, about almost 30 years, and I got to, I'm one of the few people that's ever got to write in the Hammer Slammers universe officially <laughs> with David nice. Drake's permission. <laughs> so... I, you know that was kind of awesome that I but I but I've been a fan I've been a fan there since I was ten years old. So is your inner ten year old screaming with glee? <laughs> yeah, that was pretty awesome. I'll be honest. I actually went and got a bunch of the books and reread just to write this one short story. I went and got all the big compendiums and I read through a bunch of them again just to like get freshened up to write this one short story. Uh, <laughs> and it was like, wow, this is a good reminder. It's like, God, these are really good. These are really good books. Uh, yeah, so I, I, my, my ten year, my inner ten year old gets to squee with glee quite a, quite a bit in this job. Bye. All right, and uh, so many authors let their own real life experiences ex influence the stories they tell. So, were there any specific formidable moments that really shaped you as a storyteller? And uh, we'll go with you, Larry. Um. Well, I, you notice I've had a lot of, in 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 many of my books. I always tend to get. Um, Big dudes who are gun nuts, and uh, I have a lot of big gun nuts in my books. For some reason, I have a lot of accountants, and a lot of Portuguese people show up. 
<laughs> wonder why. Most of my series are Portuguese people just ran, you know, randomly show up there. Uh, so you, gun nuts, accountants, Mormons, <laughs> Portuguese people. Yeah, so I just cram them in there. Uh, no, honestly, like as a writer, you're always borrowing from real life. You're always borrowing from people you know. Ideas are everywhere. And so, honestly, in, in, um, there's tons of stuff from my life that has wound up in my books. And, uh, you know, anytime, like, your funny friends say something really cool and they're not a writer, I'm, they all know I'm going to totally steal that. God, can you say that one more time? I got to write that down. <laughs> I was going to say, if, if any of my friends say anything cool, steal it. No. Um, the bad thing is so many of my friends are writers, though. So if one of them says something cool, they got first dibs. Oh, fair enough. So have you pulled the Clive Klessler yet and written yourself into your own books? I have once, yes. Um, there's one series called Tom Stranger. Yes. Uh, yeah. The Adventures of Tom Stranger Interdimensional Insurance Agent. So it's a comedy series. It's super goofy. Uh, there's no hold bars. Nothing is off the table for Tom Stranger. So it gets really, really weird and serious. Or sorry, really, really weird and silly. And so I am a recurring character. Uh, and then I'm Larry the writer because there's a multiverse of like different dimensions, you know, all interconnected based upon every decision ever made. There's a different universe. And uh, so there's all these different Larry Koreas in the multiverse. And I'm like the lamest of them because I'm the one that writes books. <laughs> in fact, there's the there's this one guy, the interdimensional Lord of Hate is like the world, the galaxy's most powerful arms dealer. And he, he looks like me, only he has, there's no gray, and he's got this long, flowing mane of, like, heavy metal rock star hair. And he's always smoking <laughs> a cigar. He keeps a hippie around just to put his cigar out on. Uh, nice. So, yeah, no, so I, I gotta I ask. Done, I have clustered myself. As a, a huge fan of that one, because it's definitely uh, when I'm having a rough week. So I probably listened to it a lot in 2020. Um, it's a good go-to for uh, cheering me up and making me laugh. Are you ever going to put, other than the one short you have in print already from it? See, I am a huge fan. <laughs> um, are you going to put any of them in print? Um, so far, what I've been doing is every couple years, I've been able to put out another collection of short stories. Uh, that's the Target Rich Environment series. Mm -hmm. And what I've been doing is I've been putting a, at least one Tom Stranger in each one. Okay. Um, so, so gradually they'll get there. But the Top Stranger comes out in audio first, and then uh, we go down the line. Yeah, I've, I've listened. I've read the one that you did for the Liberty Con. Oh yeah, yeah. And that was just for Liberty Con. That was that one was a hoot. That was that was a fun one because it was very, yeah. very, very Liberty Con, uh, Liberty Con specific humor. I think people who don't go to Liberty Con aren't going to really get ninety percent of that one. I think that's ninety percent of the stories in Liberty Con. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Okay. And what, what about you, John? Is there any specific formidable moment that shapes the kind of stories you tell? You know, there's not one moment that shapes it. I just know what I like and I know uh, what I like to write and I know what I like to read. And so that that's what goes into it. But as Larry said, all sorts of everything is just food into the story soup. And I'll, I'll tell you one of these, this was the inspiration for my first action thriller called Bad Penny. There's this, uh, I was living in Ohio at the time, and there was this fine old dude in our church. He was just very quiet. Any service project, he'd be there. He was this old guy, right, this old high priest in our church. And uh, he had esophagus cancer, esophageal cancer. And uh, I just, I got this little nudge one day 
you need to go record his history. Go offer to record his history. I didn't know his cancer was as advanced as it was. It was just kind of oblivious. He'd go to the hospital, and they'd take out a liter of pink fluid out of his chest cavity. And I, and I thought, well, you know, they've got it under control. He's going to do okay. So I went over there and offered to record his history. And, and, the, and at first, he's like, what? Are you kidding me? No, I don't want this. A week later, he called me and said, you know what? You better come over, and let's do it. And so it was just me, you know, asking questions, interviewing him and taping him. Well, come to find out he'd been a bank robber. He'd gone to the penitentiary, right? Went to the big house, spent a number of years there. And he said, while he was there, he was like, I, I am never coming back. When I get out, I'm never coming back. So he got out, started a laundromat, met this uh, Methodist gal in this church dance and, and never looked back, right? He's one of the... He's one of the guys that made it out. He was, he was a terrific, funny, awesome guy. And so um, after talking to him, I had a, I had a different view um, than you would normally have about people that had gone to prison. And I thought, you know what? I want to write about a guy. I didn't. My book isn't about him, but it inspired him. I want to write about a guy who's just gotten out of prison and is trying to fly straight with all of the obstacles and everything that they have. And so... Good old George Obrist inspired that. And that happens all the time. I mean, you get all sorts of people that inspire all sorts of things in the current book. Even if it's in a small way, Larry's got this in Gunrunner. And maybe we'll get into this, maybe we won't, but I'll veer over here right now. He's got this this charity red shirt list. And he can tell you about it. But, you know, we put in, there are all sorts of interesting people, interesting names and interesting little tidbits about them. And we put them into this book. There were 23 when I passed it to Larry. 23 <laughs> off of that list, and he pe- and he added more. But uh, everything is fodder for the story. Everything you run into. There's just so much good stuff in the world that uh, it, it goes into your story. Can't help it. Awesome. So transitioning a little bit away, but I'm sure you could include this in your stories. Um, and I know Larry's got to have it, even though it may not be specific to Gunrunner. Have you had any crazy fan art or cosplays? We're going to start with John because I, I Larry's answer because I've seen him at cons. Well, yeah, yeah, we know Larry's answer. Uh, I I had this. There's this artist. My first book. I don't think it's crazy. There isn't anything crazy going on with it. But um, there's this character in my first epic fantasy book. His name is. It, well, it's an it. it. Its name is Hunger, and it's uh, and uh, there's this great artist that uh, did a rendition of that that I just think is fabulous. So it's awesome when when uh, fans do stuff like that, right? Bring it to life with that or whatever else it might be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I've I've had a lot. It's actually kind of crazy, and is actually very as a writer is very humbling. Um, I've had people show up in costume from my books, uh, primarily Monster Hunter, uh, because that's the easiest to cosplay. Because if you if you've got a bunch of tat gear laying around, then you can pretty much cosplay Monster Hunter. But I've seen some crazy ones. I've had multiple Trailer Park Elves, uh, Trailer Park Elf families, entire families of people. Um, lots of art, uh, cartoons, comics, guns, guns. Yes, I have a lot of custom guns built uh, based on the series. Uh, it's it's actually kind of amazing, and lo- the one that gets me the most though is tattoos. Is when people do tattoos uh, from the books onto their body, like permanent on your body. 
tattoos. And I see that and I'm like, man, I can't ever let these people down. <laughs> I, I had one of your fans. So at Dragon Con, as you know, I, I decorate and Bane has been wonderful enough to donate the foam core covers from the roadshow. Um, and I had a couple of yours, but one of the, your fans actually showed up and her husband was a huge fan. And she had it. She's my husband's a huge fan, but she's the one with the tattoo of the happy face. And um, you weren't there that year, but her husband had to end up leaving because of something. And it, it was like a something bad happened in the family. And she was very nice. And she's like, do you mind if because we didn't get a chance to do anything if like, if you're getting rid of it, I'd love to take it home. And I'm like, if you're going to transport it nicely, then sure, go ahead. Like, she she, she explained more of it to me. I'm not going to share somebody else's information. But she was adorably sweet about it. And she did have the tattoo. Yeah, it's crazy. Um, but, yeah, like, metal art, uh, art on vehicles. Like, I got truck drivers that have done up Monster Hunter logos on their trucks. You know, I've got airplanes with monster hunter stuff i see i all the time guys in war zones sporting monster hunter patches you know hanging out the doors of blackhawks uh on manning machine guns with monster hunter patches on them it's the craziest thing uh and so like well, i said it's one of those it's a motivator for me not to phone anything in <laughs> well the um the evil happy face really does kind of jive with the veteran mentality i will say that it, it lends itself well um, so we're going to ask a couple of in the wild questions that I absolutely love. So have you been asked in the wild away from a book signing for your autograph? Somebody looked at you and went, oh, I know who you are. So Larry's already nodding his head. So we'll start yeah. there in the next, John. Um, yeah, go ahead, John. You did it. Oh, uh, Yeah. Yeah, you get that sometimes. I remember being, I was at the library. It wasn't a book signing. I was just going to the library as a patron. And some woman saw me, and she's like, she runs up to the librarian, and she's like, there's an author in there. There's an author in here. There's an author right over there. Right? So she was pretty excited about that. And I was, you know, I think it's great. To me, that shows somebody who loves books, you know, so much that they're excited about, about and they the look author. At the book so jacket. that's awesome. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I get that. I, I Part of my thing, too, is I'm kind of distinct looking. I think I stand out in the crowd. Um, so I, as far as you are taller myself, than most of the crowd. Yeah, I'm pretty... John's really tall, too. John's just a little shorter than I am. Uh, okay. I think, wait, John, you're about like 6'3 or so. So average. Well, I, I, I used to be almost 6'3". I've been shrinking, man. Yeah, me too. I used to be I used to be 6'5", almost 6'6". Six, six, I think I'm Well, I mean... Now. Larry, Larry can vouch for it. He's seen my siblings. He's average. <laughs> yeah, I'm normal sized by your family. No, but I've yeah. gotten that a lot. It's weird. So like, there'll be times where like Bridget and I will be out eating dinner, and somebody will recognize us and they'll come over and they'll be like, oh, "Are you Larry Korea?" And it's weird because you're you're not in uh, you're not in writer mode. You're not in like public persona mode. You're just kind of hanging out doing your thing. Uh, so it, so if I'm ever rude to anybody, I don't mean to be. It's just you caught me by surprise. It takes me a minute to mentally shift gears uh, to to uh, to be ready for that. But no, I get it. It's fun. Um, I get it. At some of the weird places too, because I, I get recognized in gun stores a lot. <laughs> <laughs> and so, I bet they're super friendly when they're super armed. 
Oh gosh, yeah, no, they really are. And uh, I'm one of the only authors I know. I've done book signings at shot shows, so. Uh, oh, that's awesome. Yeah, no, I get I get it at weird places, but it's fun. It, it really is fun. It's just it it it, it takes me a minute to mentally shift gears. So if you ever do catch me, uh, just give me a minute. I'll be fine. I'll. I'll uh, um, the last one was weird. I went into a Warhammer store to buy some uh, to buy some spray paints for priming, and it turned out I had like ten fans there in the store at the time. And so that was just, was weird. And <laughs> it turned into like a little mini visit, you know, and I'm not, I'm not even a Warhammer guy. I'm a, I'm an infinity guy. <laughs> yeah. I know you play Pano. Oh yeah. I play a bunch of armies. Pano is one of my main ones. That's what I'm working on right now is Pano, but yeah. Uh, no. So I, uh, I get it a lot. It's fun. <laughs> so, and if you uh, ever go to his website or whatever social media, he's still on, that they haven't chased him off of. He sometimes <laughs> shares some pretty cool pictures of the miniatures he's painting. I don't yeah, have the, the hand-eye. I don't have the hand-eye coordination for that. I wish I could be that good, but give me a nice I, wall. I'll paint the hell out of it. I uh, I'm, I'm pretty shaky, but it's actually all about just getting. It's all about technique and timing. Well, the Fair shaking enough. looks great when you're dry brushing. Oh yes, yeah, I'm great. <laughs> So I watched a lot of the news coverage live going into when we pushed into Iraq while painting Sisters of Battle and what else. <laughs> That's awesome. Yes. I am what happens when you keep the kid and you breed it as a gamer. Uh -huh. <laughs> so, uh -huh. um, but have you ever found somebody reading your book in the wild? Okay. So tell us about that. Uh, we'll let John go. You'll just, just, you'll be a place and there'll be somebody reading your book. One time I was uh, in a courthouse and uh, there was a deputy sheriff with my book, servant, right? So, and I'm not going to say anything. It's just cool. It's just like, hey, there he is, right? Oh, would have been great. Get me out of this ticket, dude. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I will admit that it is a guilty thing. So anytime I get on an airplane... And you're filing onto the airplane, and you know people. Everybody's like, like waiting to read. Everybody's reading a book in the in the waiting area and stuff. I always, 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 as I walk by, look to see what they're reading, <laughs> just to see. It's and every now and then I do catch somebody reading one of mine, and it's just kind of fun. And I'll, I'll always do something to the effect of, I go, I'll go, oh, Larry Korea novel, gross. <laughs> I don't wait to see if they recognize me. <laughs> I I can see that. That would be funny. <laughs> Have they recognized you when you've done that? Yeah, yeah. Usually they do. Usually they do at that point. But I, um, yeah, that's so that, this, that is fun. This so is his. Uh, most of the time, it's oh yeah, some <laughs> from your website. That's actually my old painting station in my old house. The new one is actually way bigger. <laughs> Impressive. <laughs> Like I'm not even joking here. In fact, I'll pick up. I'll pick up the camera. I'll, I'll pick up my camera just here, real fast, to show you. Excuse the mess. Okay, this is my current workstation. Nice. This is my in progress. Those are my work gaming tables, and those are about a thousand painted Infinity Minis. So. Well, be jealous. Be very jealous. <laughs> Maybe, I am. Yeah. That's what I do is, is the circle of life is I just paint more minis until I fill up a house and then I build a new house. It's like a, it's like a, it's like a hermit crab. Well, you bought the mountain, so you have room for that. 
So he just got to hire a few dwarves to like dig under the mountain so he has more room. Yeah, but that's how you get Balrogs. True, true. We're such nerds. It's okay, though. <laughs> so what's the funniest or weirdest story you've had as an interaction with a fan, John? I think uh, it's probably when Larry and I... Oh, that guy! Yeah. Okay, yeah. <laughs> when Larry and I were doing our book tour right at the beginning, we were down at a bookstore in Arizona, in Phoenix somewhere, and uh, we had a signing coming up, and we were waiting around. I, we were just chatting, waiting around. I got, And I was explaining to somebody my book, which is that there are these, not everything is as it seems, and there are these beings, these immensely powerful beings that are in control, and basically they're hurting humans. And this dude, <clears throat> this dude comes up to me glassy-eyed, and he's like, it's true. Your book is true. Your book is true. And then he proceeded to tell me about the lizards of the hollow earth. <laughs> so, so. So I was like, okay, awesome. Larry's got some stand-up dudes over there talking guns. I got the lizards of the hollow earth guys. <laughs> so that was probably, that's the wildest. I, I've, I haven't run into anything else like to, to top that one yet. I remember that because, a, so I, because I have a ton of fans in Arizona and they're all gun nuts, right? And so they'd all come, this way. I was like talking to like six or seven guys and we look over, and John is just, like, flummoxed because this guy is there going off about the reptoids and the secret reptoid plot and every, you know, mind control rays. And and we're all just looking at poor John as he's talking to this guy who's obviously, like, like severely schizophrenic. And, and John's just like, oh, oh, I'm glad I got six gun nuts right here. <laughs> it, it was, it was so funny. That off. That's the first time I'd heard the lizards, the reptoid theory. So then I went home and researched it. And I was like, hey, you know, if some glassy-eyed dude that comes up to you in a Barnes & Noble, you know? So. Oh, that was the weirdest. Yeah. That you cannot pick your fans. They pick you. So can you top that, Larry? That's kind of hard. No, I can't top that. I mean, I was, I was, uh, I've had some weird ones. And I've had some, I've had some crazy people threaten me. Well, as you guys know, you've seen me on the internet. And there's been places where I've signed where I've made sure I've had friends in the crowd or cops that I know uh, will, you know, will be there uh, just kind of hanging out just because that kind of crazy. But as far as absolute weirdness, yeah, that guy was, he pegged the, he pegged the weirdo meter, man. I was just glad he was focused on John and not me. Cause I'd be like, my book's about the conspiracy theory about secret monsters. (laughs) (laughs) It's coast to coast. Coast to coast radio, man. That's that's us. It was. It was. It was. That was. That was crazy. And in fact, me and Mike Cooper, our series is about all the conspiracy theories on coast to coast, basically, because it's the secret war between the Illuminati and Majestic as the background of these novels. And even then, we got nothing nearly as crazy as what John got at just a random Barnes and Noble. Yeah. So all of the fans of that series, if you're listening, and I'm assuming you are, you need to the next time you see him, see if you can out crazy the crazy. No, please don't. <laughs> it gets weird you're, you're not going to win friends and influence people I've never had to pepper spray anybody at a book signing yet please don't make me start <laughs> I, I will admit Barnes and Noble sometimes gets some unique characters and I say that I was a sales associate there for a while yeah they do 
They do. Um, but you know, <laughs> local flavor, right? Oh yeah. All right, so normally we would ask them to list everything that they've written, but since they did that in their introduction, we're going to jump right in to talking about Gunrunner. So where did the premise um, for this universe come up with? How did you come up with the idea? Was it psychedelics, a Ouija board, overindulging in expired funeral potatoes? So can you guys spill it, whichever one of you had the, the brainchild for this? Let, reading let me start, Larry, and then you can yeah, do you the can second part. It. So Larry and I had done um, – presentations at conferences before how to write three killer things you need to know how to, to you know to write killer stories th those types of things and there was a, a conference in utah and i pitched an idea to them about um we want to teach people how to write an action plot and they said yeah that sounds great we'd love to have you and larry do that but i knew you know from having done this before and done it with larry and we wanted to have audience participation i knew there's not enough time to start from the ground floor and then build it up, especially not when we're trying to teach them how to plot. And so we needed to have a story premise, a story idea together to bring to the conference in order to, to be able to show them how to plot. So I went over to Larry's house and we're sitting there on the couches and chatting. And Larry's son, Joe, was about 11 or 10, 10 or 11, right, Larry? Somewhere yep. on he was about 11, and he's sitting on the stairs, you know, just kind of listening in. You could see the top of his head. You know, he was just sitting there listening in. And I said, okay, so what do we want to do? And I, I asked a question about a type, and Larry says, Larry immediately says, hey, Joe, what's cool? And Joe pops up and says, giant robots, bandits, and murderers. And Larry and I, Larry and I looked at each other, and we're like, oh, dang, that is cool. So we ran with that seed, and in about 30, 40 minutes, we had um, the premise for a terrific story, and that's what we took to the conference. And then we, you know, we did audience participation, and we built a plot with that. And then, and then nothing happened, right? We, we looked at each other after that, and we're like, man, if, uh, if we ever got around to writing this, this would be a great book. But he was busy with his stuff. I was busy with mine. So, Larry, why don't you take it from there? Well, and uh, Bay and Books loves doing collaborations, and uh, so they love teaming authors up, and I have done a lot. I've done a lot more than most writers, and they work pretty good for me, and I had just wrapped up a collaboration with Sarah Hoyt, uh, Monster Hunter Guardian, and it came out really good, and so Tony Weisskopf asked if I had any other collaborations I would like to pitch to her, and uh, the very first thing that popped into my head was this one. Uh, with John from when we had uh, worked together. And then I had a second one I pitched to her also that it was from a different project that came up with a guy named Steve Diamond. So I pitched her two projects, one sci-fi, one, fa one fantasy. And uh, she immediately was like, wow, yeah, okay, those both sound good. I'll buy them both. <laughs> and so I, uh, I emailed John and I was like, hey, man, remember that panel we did? Uh, you know, with the, with the, with the giant robots and the murders and the bandits. And he's like, he's like, great. Yeah, that was great. Fun. I was like, want to go ahead and write that book? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No so pressure though. Years later, and then it took a while to actually, you know, we got the contract. So it took a while to fit it in our schedules and then work on it. And, uh, so, I mean, this book didn't come out until probably five years after we had the original, uh, talk about it. So, that, that just kind of shows the process. It, it takes a while. And the way we did this uh, collaboration was I, so I did like the, the, 
the the big outline and then kicked it to John. John did the rough draft. So John did most of the like the the heavy lifting on word count. And then he kicked it back to me and then I chopped some out, biffed some up, kicked it back to him. He kicked it back to me, so on and so forth. And uh and did that for several months back and forth until we wound up with Gunrunner and uh I'm really proud of it. I think it came out really good. I, I thoroughly enjoyed this book. I, I enjoyed writing it. And so far, it seems like people have really enjoyed reading it. So they're getting great. That was reviews. a fun one. It's a good blend of the two of you, I think. Because like, there are definite moments when I'm like, that had to have been John. And there are definite moments of that was definitely Larry. Yeah, so. true. And also, always my goal with the collaboration is it, it's never perfectly clear who wrote what. You know what I mean? I like to, I mean, ideally it's it's a blend of the two authors. It's a product different than either one of us would have created on our own. I know, but I blame you on all the gun jargon. Uh, (laughs) Kinda. (laughs) Well, what's funny is already in some reviews, there are people who are trying to guess and they're getting it wrong. So uh, it really is what Larry said. There, There are, there's of course flavor from both of us and we could go back and point to them, but it, it becomes a, it's a different animal, isn't it? Larry? It is. It's just a, really it's a different animal. I actually wrote a, I wrote a little article about, I wrote a blog post about collaborating and I used Gunrunner as an example. And it was because somebody had given us a really dumb review. It was actually, it was one of those hate reviews because it came out so fast after the book came out that it was pretty obvious. The guy just skimmed the beginning so that he could write, he, so he could talk about enough stuff to like complain about so it didn't sound like an obvious fake review so we could hurry up and give it one star which is funny because then like the next 500 reviews are you know four or five star but um but it was so funny because of how ass backwards the guy got it because very specifically he said that um he's like oh it's clear that because he, he once again he'd only read like the first 60 pages it was, was what, what he could tell and he was all going off about how, oh, this is just Larry Korea clearly had no hand in this. He just farmed it out to John Brown. And he's citing the intro. Well, here's the kicker. And John knows this, and I know this. Originally, this book didn't have an introductory chapter. It started in what would actually be chapter two was actually chapter one. And it wasn't until the editing process at the very end that Tony Weisskopf said, you know, guys, this book really needs a prologue. She's not normally a prologue person, but she said, really, the way you guys have the story, her editing advice was you guys really need a prologue. At the time, John was busy. We talked about it a little bit. He was going. He had an idea. I had an idea. But I went ahead and I, I took a shot at it. And so the first, the whole first chapter that this guy was complaining about um, had no influence by me. Was actually the longest single part of the book that was me in or uninterrupted. <laughs> so he was like, "Oh, Mister Mind Reader, you're not as smart as you think, are you, buddy?" This is that first like 18 pages or whatever was straight up uh, was was the very last thing we wrote during the editing process. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my gosh, critics. <laughs> they what are you gonna do? They well, suck. I think sometimes they just want to be mean because they think it makes them sound smart. Uh, it's funny because <clears throat> pretty much for me, as soon as a book comes out, okay, as soon as a book is listed on Goodreads before the book is out, often before I finish the book, it's got one star reviews. Uh. So I have that going for me. <laughs> how, how? That should be banned. Yeah, well, because they, jerks, so it's okay. I, I don't care. They, they do it that way because legitimate reviews from people that get the early 
copies to, to have the reviews sort of ready. And so they have to open it, but there's really no way unless you're going to the publisher's website specifically for them to weed out that from the cranks. Like, so I get it logistically. It'd be a pain in the butt to, to do it, but. See, but I actually don't mind do? the cranks because to me, business-wise, the more obnoxious the crank is, the more I can make fun of it on the internet, the more I use it to sell books. This is true. And we used to do this. Uh, we took this section out because there was just no, it wasn't as well received. But one of the things we said in the old one, it was a sci-fi shenanigans was you can sometimes learn more about a book, whether it's for you or not from the one star reviews, than you can from the five stars. <laughs> so like if someone says, you know, this guy cusses too much and, and you know, that's your thing. You don't really care. Well, sweet. You know, so that uh, some of my favorite reviews were actually the one stars. Oh, yeah. So, but uh, speaking of reviews, let's talk about that cover for a second. So how did that, uh, that glorious image come to be? What's the, the origin story for that book cover? Larry, you know more about, about that than I do. This, so was, this was done. Wasn't this done before we had turned the book in? The book, uh, yeah, they had just, uh, so they need, basically the sucky thing about covers is they got to get such an early jump on that to get, um, uh, publicity stuff out, especially behind the scenes amongst booksellers and wholesalers and catalogs and stuff. They usually have the covers out a lot of times before the book is done. Uh, especially because a guy like me who's just got back to back to back releases. And so a lot of times my covers aren't done yet. And so I had given the outline and the rough draft to the artist. Um, but it was still really rough. Like we hadn't, we didn't have the finale down yet. So we had a giant monster in it. Um, but this was not at all how he described the monster originally. Uh, and so then this cover came out and you know, this is the editing process. Like, oh, so, I gotta, so guess what the monster looks like now, John? <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, all right, the monster's got tentacles now, baby. Boom. <laughs> so that's just part of the, that's just part of the process. <laughs> yeah. And so it's kind of funny. The downside of this cover though, is it's a monster, and I'm known as a mo as the monster guy. As what I, I'm kind of that's kind of my stereotype, and so this book comes out. People see the giant monster on the cover, so they think it's a monster novel primarily, but it's a science fiction novel. Um, and so, but you know, the whole purposes of a cover is to get people to click on the thumbnail on Amazon or to pick it up long enough in the bookstore to read the back cover. So in that respect, it works fine. Yeah. Awesome. So why don't you give us the 30-second elevator pitch for the book? Whichever one of you. I'll let you fight for the right. Did you say go for it, John? Yeah, I'm putting you on the spot, man. No pressure. So, um, so basically, this is a story about a guy who was a, 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 a child soldier. He had been impressed into service. Well, I guess he had been impressed. Well... He'd been impressed. He was a child soldier. We'll just leave it at that. And um, and uh, was a hero, and then was was totally not a hero. So this is a messed up guy, and uh, he's had this uh, kept him, take him under his wing, and and um, and that's what you get in the introduction, right? You kind of get a little bit of a backstory to understand where Jackson Rook comes from, and they've got this business. They've got this business, and this is one of the original ideas that we had way back when we first when we first had this. They've got this business where they're they're doing the right, they're in a righteous cause. They're supplying guns, 
to the oppressed masses who can't fight back, right? Who the gu the guns are being withheld from them, and so they're they're black market smugglers. The problem is they've got some weaponry that they've just sold to somebody, and it looks like maybe they might have sold it to the wrong side. So now what do you do, right? So that's kind of the that's kind of the basis of the story, uh, but there's a lot more to it. The, the location of where all this happens is fascinating and was a lot of fun to write, um, as were a lot of the other characters along with it. I don't know. Larry, you got anything to add to that description? I don't know, man. I suck at pitching. <laughs> no, it's, the story it's, got uh, picked up, so you didn't suck too bad. No, it's, <laughs> it's basically it's the story of a, of, a, of a crew, this motley gang of – uh, badass space pirates who go around stealing advanced weapon systems to supply them to the people who aren't allowed to have them. And uh, in this particular case, they supply a guy who turns out to be a total scumbag warlord despot uh, who's actually oppressing his people. And Jackson, our hero, comes from a background of being oppressed. And so when he sees this kind of thing going down, he has a real hard time with it. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, it, it gets a little nuts. And, uh, and it's a, on a planet full of giant monsters, we get to have giant robot fights. And, uh, yeah, we had a lot of fun with this. Basically, every sci-fi trope you can think of, we shoved into this book. <laughs> it is tropalicious, well, but I truly enjoyed it. Not lightsabers, Larry. There were no lightsabers. That's true. There's no lightsabers. We didn't oh. really laser guns. We went projectile weapons. And, it, uh, it sounds like you're going to be putting lightsabers in the next one, then. I know we might have to. <laughs> no, but on a challenge, on a challenge, because somebody on a somebody on a Facebook page, specifically uh, for for Infinity, Jessica, and uh, somebody <laughs> saying, "Oh, flamethrowers in space are stupid," and I was like, I took that as a personal challenge now to figure out a way to make an effective space zero G space flamethrower. So that's going in the. I mean, that I have to do that. That's uh, that's just a thing now because a guy on the internet told me it was stupid. So have like, you figured it out yet? Name, but I'm going to kick his ass now and have a zero G space flamethrower and make it awesome. Yeah, have you no, it you out? Have... So uh, what? Have you figured it out yet? Yeah, I actually posted. I passed. I posted on Facebook to get all the physicists arguing about it. They came up with <laughs> ideas. Nice, nice. <laughs> and Elon Musk will build one, and we'll buy it. buy it. Oh hell yeah, man! I'm Team Elon. Get me off this rock. <laughs> <laughs> so, what makes this story special and unique? Other than being completely tropalicious. <laughs> well, what makes it special and unique is that it's written by Korea and Brown. That's what makes it special and unique. <laughs> they are so modest and so humble. Everybody says so, I swear. You know, actually, that, that no, it, it sounds silly, but that's a true point. Because, you know, the thing is, we're like chefs. Every chef has a different flavor, you know, in their dish. They're going to have their different spin on it. And so basically every book's going to be special and unique depending on who put it together. In this case, you know, I've known John for 10 years or over 10 years. And, uh, you know, we've talked about doing a project together and we've brainstormed a lot together. We've talked a lot about writing. We spent a lot of hours in a car together driving across America talking writing philosophy, you know. So it was fun to get together and uh, be able to do this stuff. I think that does kind of make it unique. Yeah. Well, you know, what's what well, I think what might be uh... – there are a couple of things that we tried to blend and uh, I don't know if I made it unique. There are thousands and thousands of books being published every year, but I, I can say that there was something about this that I really enjoyed. And that was um, 
the fact that we wanted to have, we wanted it to be high action and an adventure. We wanted to have fun. At the same time, there are a lot of high action adventure space stories where they don't, they play fast and loose with physics and, and other things like that. And we wanted to make sure that we tried as best we could to whenever we did things to come up with plausible explanations. Now, there are some things like we have, how are we going to get from point A to point B? Well, I wasn't personally interested in multi-generation ships. And I was like, let's not do that, Larry. Let's, let's, let's do gates. Somebody figured something out about gate because I want to be able to get out to the stars. I wasn't interested in that. Larry was kind enough to say, well, okay, yeah, let's go with that. So we have something like, you know, we have a gate, which is unexplained black box technology, but, but for other things, we, we, you know, we were trying to, to work it out. For example, with the mechs, we wanted to have mech suits in this thing. And, and we both were like, when would a mech suit make sense? Cause if I'm in a battle space, I'm, if I'm on land and I'm standing up 40 feet into the air, walking around, you know, like that, that, that isn't going to make sense. I'm just going to make a big target out of myself. So when would it make sense? And we went through a process trying to figure out, well, in this situation, mechs would make a lot of sense probably. And so it was, it was that, but it was just combined with having a lot of fun. This isn't one of those science fiction stories where you come away with, uh, I don't know. This isn't a, an intellectual exercise. It's not an intellectual. Larry and I, I mean, there are certainly things you can think about after you get done. But it's not an intellectual puzzle, inter, you know, that type of an exercise. It's big, it's fun, and uh, we got a lot of cool things in it. So you know, I'm just, I'm just proud that we were able to write space combat and get David Weber to read it and give us a positive blurb without yelling at us for our bad science. <laughs> uh, I, I was impressed because there were no waves of missiles. Oh man, no. So we did have quite a few missiles at the end, but not waves and waves. There just wasn't that much extra room on these cargo ships so you could hide them from customs agents. Though I remember at the end, though, for that for the space fight scene, I remember having a spreadsheet open with uh, missile speeds and railgun speeds and distances and how many seconds it would take to close, you know, X thousand kilometers. And I was like, when I was looking at that thing, I'm man, I'm getting a little too David Webbery here. <laughs> I'm <laughs> Team Hand Wavy. I'm tearing this down. You know, my fans, my fans don't want to do math. <laughs> I, I don't want to do math when I read. I want to enjoy the story. Well, as David says, uh, David Weber will never tell a story where three worlds will do. David will use five. Larry Korea will, if three worlds will do, he, Larry will use one. <laughs> so that's what he said about us. I think that's probably pretty accurate. Yeah, I think the best insult I've ever seen on the Facebook was when somebody commented, wow, David didn't even waste 50, 20 words on you. <laughs> he just went, you're wrong. <laughs> he goes, Chuck said it best, you're wrong. And that was it. Wow. Everybody everybody who knows David is like, oh, bless his heart. That guy just stick a fork in him. He is done. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I, I would say <laughs> um, – what trope did you like best that you put in? What was your favorite trope that you did for this? Wow. Or oh. your favorite twist on the trope, whichever one. No, I, I, for me, it was fun to just do giant robots. Giant robot fights. Total trope. I went 
full, we went full giant robot fights. I, I love that. Oh man, I love, I love the, I love the mech, the giant robot stuff. Uh, battle minions. Uh, oh, battle yeah. minions on this one. I don't know. I haven't seen anything like it, and they are just fun. These little there, there's a character in this book. Uh, her name is Jane, and she's basically a combat controller. If you want to think about it that way, she's the IT person. Um, and but she's not. I mean, and she is a little bit nerdy, and she's a little bit, a little bit techie. But she's more. I don't know. How would you How would you describe her, Larry? She's she's Jane not nerdy death. enough. What was that? She's the angel of death. In this she, yeah, she's she's a little odd in the angel of death way. And she's got these uh, these robots, these you know these these killer robots, and she's named them all these cutesy names: Fifi, Mimi, Ron, and and they they will they they will slit your throat, right? Which one so, of us decided? To, I can't remember which one of us decided to make them cute. We made them chibi. We made them all cute robots. Was that me or was that I me think you started coming up with cute names, and I think I ran with it. And then you and then you added some more. So I think what started. Well, I, made, I remember the bear. I made the bear like adorable. I remember. I remember adding the, the adorable teddy bear of murder. So it was like a little walking teddy bear robot with chainsaw hands. And uh, Ron wasn't it? Ron was the bear. It's Ron. Ron. Yeah, I think I came up with Fifi. You came up with Ron. You came up with Fifi. Yeah, yeah. Fifi was Fifi. People love Fifi. Fifi is this adorable, about the like a pea size. Like little robot ladybug looking thing with a laser, <laughs> just like will crawl up on your neck and laser open your arteries. I mean, she is so violent. <laughs> so yeah, so we we had a good time. We had a good time with that. There's a I don't know if it's a twist or not with the the big town space. And this is, uh, you know how when you get up into space uh, frequently, things are very. Um, sterile. They're very orderly. It's big. It's epic. It's it's like that. And maybe the, I know, I know that Blade Runner was grungy, but uh, this is a an orbital that is. It's like we a went, ghetto. We went full space Mogadishu. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm Murder serious. Murder Barbie it, in it, space Mogadishu. I like it. It was because yeah. it, it, it was like there were basically the remains of this. 11 kilometer long colony ship that they turned into an orbital and basically they just started building shanty towns in it and it just kept growing and growing and growing and growing and they just keep adding on to it until it just turned into this giant you know orbital city of, of kind of chaos yeah you know and there's decent people trying to make a life in there but there's a lot of scumbags preying on them and uh, yes we basically went full space mogadi i mean it's run by a warlord um and uh it, that was that was that was fun i love yeah. the warlord by the way i love that character that guy was awesome yeah warlord's awesome so he's fun another another trope is you know a lot of science fiction or at least space opera it's exploration you're finding new places and uh you know i think we did a little uh something that was fun for us was this planet called swindle you know here they are exploring space and, and the way that we uh, organized it was that you had this International Space Federation of all the nations that got together. And what would happen is if somebody would finance an exploration of a place, then as they started assigning these things out and selling them, they could recoup some of that money, 
Well, these people went out to this place. They sent back all these amazing pictures, and they called the planet Lush because it was just so beautiful. But this planet – so and then so you get this ship that goes out there, all these people with their life savings. They're not going to be able to come back. And uh, this planet is wants to kill you. The air wants to kill you. The, the flora wants to kill you. The fauna wants to kill you. It's a very hostile place. And that's where a lot of the action occurs. So it's pretty fun. Pretty fun. So basically Australia in space. Oh, turned up turned up to 11 and broke the knob off and then threw dinosaurs on it. I mean, it's nuts. This yeah. <laughs> you had me at dinosaurs. It's so bad. <laughs> this planet, this planet, like literally like John says, it's out to kill you. Like, I don't think we ever had a single animal on this planet that wasn't just a bastard. Like, everything was eating everything else, and everything wanted to eat people. And if they were smaller than you, they wanted to gang up and eat you. And it wasn't even vice versa, because there was only, like, one animal on the whole planet that he was edible to humans. But we were edible to everything, so it wasn't even fair. <laughs> yeah, that doesn't. That sounds like somebody really rolled a one. Yeah, there was, like, there was like this one kind of shrimp thing, or bug, about the size of a jumbo shrimp, that was edible. <laughs> that was about it. Everything else. That was it. Everything else wanted to just sting you in the eye. <laughs> yeah, we, had, we had a good time with that. We had, I mean, there's just a lot of fun things. And I think that's one of the operating principles that we had going into this. It started with Joe. Hey, Joe, what's cool? And as we were developing this, the initial ideas together and, and just spitballing, and, hey, what about this? Oh, my gosh, this would be awesome. This would be awesome. There were, there were, in fact, a lot of ideas that we couldn't fit into this novel that we originally were just like, oh, this would be so awesome. But it just... You know, you can't fit everything in. Um, but there will be a sequel. Depends. We're still we're waiting to see how it does. Yeah. Okay. We'll see. It's still it's still new enough. I think it's done really good, but we'll have to wait and see. Because honestly, the thing is, I'm busy. John's busy. So, if the book is popular and people want more, then I'd be happy to revisit it. Cool. Oh, well, I'm sure give there's some people who are really relieved if they've read that, if they've read the book, hearing that. Well, I just um, told John about this. So, I mean. Uh, Basically, this is both of our universe, you know, but I, yeah. I told John about this a couple weeks ago. I got approached by Audible to do a novella for them. And, um, um, you know, just a 20,000 word story. And so it was a sci-fi. And so I went ahead and set it in the same universe, even though it's on, on as Gunrunner, even though it's on a totally different planet. And it's probably about 100 years later than, than our current timeline. But it's just in a totally different part of the galaxy. And uh, um, I haven't even, but it was just, a couple lines of dialogue that we had in Gunrunner about lost colonies, about how, because the way the gates work, the gates are kind of aim your ship at a point in space and fling you out there uh, faster than light. And every now and then, if the gate screwed up, it would launch a ship to who knows where, and people were just gone. And so I wrote a story about one of those. It was supposed to go to this really nice planet, and for whatever reason, it missed. <laughs> and they wound up in the middle of deep space and the nearest place they could get nearest system they could get to was like a 10 year trip from where they were and they made it barely and and the only sort of habitable planet there really 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 sucks and um and so i'm then i'm writing about this lost colony about 100 years later and it's actually a gritty cop show story it's it's just a it's a it's a murder mystery story but I said it in the Gunrunner universe, basically. But the only thing that's really tied in is the way the gates work. Yeah. Um, okay. So, yeah, me and John will probably be picking through this uh, 
franchise for ideas for a long time. I got to send the story to you, John. I just finished the rough draft today. Oh, that'd be cool. You heard it here yeah, first. There's time. a lot. There's a lot that can be done in this universe. And one of the things that we did, you know, as we were thinking about it, we were like, you know, we don't want to write this hundreds and hundreds of years in the future because, I mean, that's fine. There's stories that are great like that. But a lot of time the tech, it's just black box and we're back into fantasy, which is awesome and we love it. But we wanted to have this be a little bit closer to our own current time. So, you know, over the next 50, 60, 70, 80 years, somebody discovers gay technology. Imagine that. And then what happens, right? What happens from there? So it's still, you know, we still got guns. We still got guns. We still got, we still got a lot of things that, uh, that we would recognize. And I, uh, for me, that's a, it's a fun mix. That's, I think that's kind of like the firefly feel. It's out. It's, it's not quite as epic as maybe star Wars is, but it's still got that firefly, a uh, little bit of a gritty feel to it. So you've told us about the main character. Are there any secondary characters that you love that are pretty memorable for you as the writer? Either one of you can answer if you've got anybody. Well, there's a bunch, actually. We've mentioned Jane. Uh, actually, I really, really like the captain. Uh, the captain of the ship, Captain Holloway. Um, it's kind of fun because one one thing was when you're writing a book together, it really helps for you to agree upon like an actor or someone you know as if they would be playing that character. That way you could keep it kind of consistent between you, the two of you. And so for the character who is the captain of this pirate ship, basically, we picked Nick Cersei from uh, from Justified. You know, okay. on Justified. And so he's this guy from North Carolina. He's a normal looking dude. He just wants to get back to Earth. He wants to retire from being a space pirate. But he's a man with a code and he's a good guy. He's a moral guy in a, in a moral business. And um, it was kind of funny. So then when John and I were trying to name the ship, we just knew the captain was from North Carolina and he wanted to go back to North Carolina. So the ship needed a North Carolina name. So John had come up with a name. Uh, I'd come up with a name, but we couldn't really come up with like a name that we both liked. And uh, and so I threw it out on Facebook and I was like, hey, guys, if you're going to have a ship from North Carolina, you know, what would it be named? And I threw it out there and everybody's like, so Nick Cersei, the actor we based the character on, jumps on. And he goes, it'd be called the Tar Heel. And I looked at John. I was like, "That's it. We can't. <laughs> it's the Tar Heel." I mean, he's literally—he's the captain. He's literally the captain himself. Got on to Facebook and told me what the ship would be named. Done. Did he know he was the the inspiration? No, at the when, time he did not. That is awesome. <laughs> that makes it even better. Now. now I sent him a copy. John and I signed a copy and I mailed it to him. <laughs> That's awesome. No, he's he's read a bunch of my books. He's a great guy. That's awesome. awesome. Okay, so you mentioned the the warlord. Uh, is that the main bad guy, or was there other bad guys that they have to face throughout the course of this novel? Oh, he's or the he, main bad guy, but there's several. Okay, we will, obviously we don't want spoilers because you want people to read your book, obviously. Well, John mentioned the charity red shirt list earlier. That's just where people would send me their names or their nicknames and a few little factoids about them, and I try to get this stuff into a book. And John was going through and picking names. Well, we needed like a bad guy space captain. We needed a guy who was like a, a captain of a, of, a, of a different kind of space. You know, like, like these are a little more stereotypical pirates. Um, a thug. Yeah, and this guy's name was Jeet Prunkard. And, uh, that's, and that's his name. That was, his real name is something else, but Jeet is what he goes by. And uh, it's Jeet Prunkard. And, and John picked that. And I was like, and I looked at it, I was like, that is the best bad guy space pirate name ever so i don't know if he, mr prunkard has seen this uh, but 
But he, and one of the things he mentions, he's got a bulldog. He's got this ugly, slobbery bulldog. Overweight so, bulldog, yeah. Yeah, so we gave, <laughs> we gave the space pirate a bulldog. So we, like, you know, they're in zero G. There's no artificial gravity on this ship unless it's accelerating. And so he's just up there with his bulldog, taking care of Floating business. around beside him. Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. That's going to be All right. Uh, no, but but I, I do tell people I want to be the J, uh, Joe Buckley of my generation. So I'm I'm working on getting my friend authors to kill me off. <laughs> yeah, so, we've all killed some Joe Buckleys. I killed Joe Buckley three times in one book. I'm not jealous. Totally not jealous. Uh, but I'll, I'll catch up with him. I, I think I'm at like 15 now. Wow. With my friends that, that have killed me. But, you know, I've got a lot to catch up with him. Terry makes him like killing, killing you in very embarrassing ways. Hey, I, I, I am a vice admiral in the Royal Manticora Navy, I will have you know. Oh, that is awesome. Did I you make yourself a uniform? Myself. Say what? Did you make yourself a uniform? No, no, I have not. <laughs> <laughs> so so this is the fun question that we like to ask. So you, you've put your characters through some horrific situations. You've put them on planets that want to eat them alive. So if your characters ever stepped out of the pages of the book and they realized that you were the person that did that to them, how do you think they would react? <laughs> hmm. Jackson would probably step on us with a giant robot. <laughs> That's probably right. I think Better chapter one alone would do that. Jane would just kill us with a swarm of vicious little robots. So I think I'd rather be stepped on by the one big one than Ron with the chainsaw hands. That's probably what would happen. I hope I don't meet him. Yeah. I think the prologue definitely earned some squishing. Well, I just figured at Larry, at least, he's probably got enough guns that maybe he could hold them off for a few seconds. Oh, no. These things, are, this, we're talking, these are some big war machines, man. I'm toast. Yeah. <laughs> All right, Seska, the next one is you. So can you tell us a little bit more about the world? Because for these kind of series, um, the world is as much a character in and of its own self. Um, oh, no, we talked about Swindle quite a bit. It's uh, yeah. the, So basically the two main settings of this book are Swindle and Big Town. So Swindle is the planet itself uh, that they were supposed to live on. And then Big Town is the orbital where they're kind of stuck because they can't live on the planet um yeah i don't know john anything else we haven't talked about on that well i guess maybe you know um i don't know man i mean i can get all technical like swindles a little the gravity is a little bit less than earth so you can get taller trees and that type of thing and i we also thought about convergent evolution so you know, they're going to be, for different um, different tasks, you're going to have similar evolutionary shapes and stuff like that. I mean, there's there's yeah. a resistance group there. The original settlers, one of the big beefs here, I guess maybe we can talk about this. Like The, the, the um, original settlers went out there, and the, the planet was billed as lush. But once they got there, of course, you know, it was a total bust. So the actual, what everybody refers to this planet as is Swindle. So it's the planet Swindle. And there are a number of original, and, and they were up in these orbitals. They cobbled them together. They made a, they made a life. But the things degraded, and there were warlords, and there were battles. And there were some of these original settlers that had original claims to the, uh, the land down there. And what they discovered was there is this chemical there called CX. 
and that's uh, very vital to the gate technology using in the gates. And so suddenly, oh my gosh, right? Now this property is worth something. Well, there are settlers that are living down um, uh, subterranean in, in subterranean habitats down on this planet that's highly vegeta vegetation. And um, there, the warlord up in the orbital basically wants to extinguish him so he can take over the CX. So there's a there's a lot of um, a lot of cool tension and uh, stuff like that on this planet. And uh, the orbital, of course, is we put a lot of cool ideas with the orbital. Like, where would you get a water source out in space? We committed. And, we committed a lot of war crimes uh, during this. Yeah, we did a yeah. lot of horrible things to a lot of decent people. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, so I think for Larry, you know, you got this planet. It's got super tall trees, tons of vegetation, tons of aggressive fauna, um, and uh, then you got this big town, which is like. Blair said Mogadishu in space in a space in a space orbital, you know, one of those tubes that's that's rotating. And I, I think people will get a feel from that. I think they'll get a feel from that. It, it's a fun, fun setting. A, a giant robot fight scene inside of a giant tube where you can look up and see the street, you know, that's like a mile that way, but it's right above your head. It actually causes some challenges for fight scenes. That was actually kind of fun, you know. So you got you got these robots, but basically tank equivalent weapons. There are some old Gundams you should have watched doing this research. Well, yeah, because basically it was like it was like Battlefield, but it was it's to take a Battlefield but roll it into a tube so it's three dimensional, and it made for some interesting firefights. Yeah, I had fun with that. Yeah. So you mentioned that there are creatures. How did you guys go about designing the creatures? Oh. Whole cloth, or well, I mean, I you, you did say you had to edit in details from the cover. <laughs> well, yeah, on the big one, on the big one, the so basically, like, like, like John said, is is we had it so there's different like areas of uh, convergent evolution, there's different kinds of monsters, there's insect equivalents and bird equivalents. Oh, my battery's dying. Sorry, I get my low oh. power notice there. Um, no, so we had like. All these just nasty basically the whole goal there was every monster had to be nasty in some way and like one point john made up this uh uh kind of bug called the wallard they live in these trees and they're just these nasty basically stinging cockroaches uh they're, they're venomous stinging cockroaches imagine um and they look kind of like trilobites. And our main character at one point decides, because he's stuck on, I don't want to give too many swords for it. He's trying to like climb up a tree to see if he can like figure out where he is and get a look around. And this is when he discovers that wallards live in the trees. <laughs> and he gets the, you know, just like these things try to just murder him. Um, and we had like all sorts of different creatures. The Caliban was a recurring one. Imagine like a cross between a horse and an alligator. Um, so like kind of galloping alligator type monsters. Uh, and then the big one was the kaiju. It was the, the peak of evolution. Like, once again, uh, the gravity's lower, so we could get away with, like, bigger creatures uh, without violating, you know, uh, physics too much. And uh, so this thing is basically the king. This is the king of its biosphere. Nothing screws with it. It eats whatever it wants, whenever it wants. And it's basically, it's, it, it is the old god of this world. And at the very end... You know, they get to look into its eyes. And there's a great scene. I don't want to, like, give anything away, but it's just very much, yeah, it's, it's badass. <laughs> well, before you can give it away, how, is there anything else 
about Gunrunner that you'd like to share with us that we haven't asked? Oh, man. Oh. Uh, I don't know, John. You, I, you uh, talk a lot. <laughs> I, yeah, I, I, I think the key thing is that it, it was meant to be action-adventure in space. And it's okay. just, for me, it was ton, It was just a ton of fun to write. It was just tons and tons of fun to write. And I hope that comes through. And I think if you look at the reviews that we've been getting, that's it, it's come through. And that's, that's what people are enjoying about this story. Yeah, I would agree. That was, we set out to have a good time. But my philosophy of writing is it's contagious. If I'm having a good time creating it, that will bleed through on the page and then people will have a good time reading it or listening to it. You know, it's, it's, it is, it's, I call it contagious enthusiasm. And, uh, so honestly, the, the, that's why you can always tell if a writer's having a bad time when he's writing a book or if a writer's really struggling, it comes through, it comes through in the page. So yeah. I, I, I try to be, I try to be downright gleeful <laughs> as I'm doing horrible things to decent people. <laughs> All right, that could be the uh, the show uh, cover, doing horrible things to decent people, the Larry Curio way. <laughs> so obviously your battery is dying, so you're going to have to go. But luckily for you, we're at the end of our question. So as we wrap this up, Larry, how can listeners or viewers contact or find you on the interwebs? Um, best thing to do is uh, go to my blog. It's Monster Hunter Nation. Um, and I have a newsletter there. You can sign up. The newsletter is Strictly Book Stuff. Um, or, or you can follow me there. I, I've been kicked off of Facebook so much that I'm not really on there anymore, though there is a really active fan page on there still. Um, I, I, but I, I come back for one day and then get banned for 30. <laughs> um, the, uh, I'm also active on MeWe. Yeah, but the best place to get a hold of me is my blog or sign up for my newsletter on my blog. Okay. Same and... Yeah. My, the best place for me is uh, at my site, johndbrown.com. Okay, and those will all be in the show notes. I will get those for you, dear listener. Uh, you can find us on our website, which is anchor.fm backslash blasters, tack, and tack blade. Anchor.fm backslash blasters, tack, and tack blades. Our Twitter is twitter.com backslash sf underscore fantasy underscore show. Sierra Foxtrot underscore fantasy underscore show. You can email us at blastersandbladespodcast at gmail.com. We even sometimes check. I checked this morning. Uh, no guarantees because uh, we forget a lot. Uh, and then you can find us on our Facebook group, Blasters and Blades Podcast, uh, on the search bar, facebook.com backslash Blasters and Blades Podcast. And if you want to help keep the lights on, you can make sure to put in the comment for the podcast at buymeacoffee.com backslash author J.R. Handley. And now it's to you, Seska. Wrap it up. And so thank you for spending your precious time with us. For the absentee comic artist, Nick Garber, J.R. Handley, and myself, Thank you for joining us with Larry Korea and John Brown. Um, we'll be back next week where we'll indulge our love of nerd culture, cheesy goat jokes, and all things that go boom. 